Vanity, vanity, says the teacher. Everything is vanity. The New International Version says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Or in the words of another translation, vapor, vapor. Everything is vapor. Looking for a current day aphorism to express this sentiment, I thought immediately of a beer commercial from the 70s when I was in college. No, don't ask why that came to mind. And yes, I know I did say current day. Well, at any rate, the commercial said, you only go around once in life, so you've got to grab all the gusto you can. By the way, bonus points after the service for anyone who can name the beer without cheating on Google. Or a different version of the same thought, and one of my favorites, which says life is short and unpredictable. Eat dessert first. Out of curiosity, I looked up this quote, and surprisingly, it is attributed to Helen Keller. So can we find some meaning in life apart from grabbing all the gusto of a cold beer or enjoying a delicious dessert first. Ancient Mesopotamian mythology dating back over 2,000 years before Christ tells the story of Gilgamesh, a demigod, half human, half god. Gilgamesh finds that ruling the planet with all of his powers is too easy for him. So he creates mischief and troubles and, the, and tempts the gods into making life more challenging. The gods send him a rival, and after confronting various obstacles and exploits, his friend Enkidu dies from an illness at the hands of the gods. Gilgamesh proclaims to himself, for whom have I labored? For whom have I journeyed? For whom have I suffered? I have gained absolutely nothing for myself. What does it mean, our struggle through life, if in the end we die? If in the end we all make mistakes? Here we have a demigod with incredible gifts and powers, yet he yearns for an answer. He yearns to find meaning in life. When we lived in New England, we often took our children for hikes to Walden Pond, which was located not far from where we lived. Near the pond, in the woods a short distance off the trail, you can still see the place where Henry David Thoreau built his simple cabin. Thoreau had a minimalist philosophy of life. 
believing that our culture pushes us to acquire more and more things in order to be happy. And this was in the 19th century. Imagine if he could see how far we have come in our consumer society today. As a result of this push toward consumerism, Thoreau believed that the mass of men and women lead lives of quiet desperation. Instead, he wanted, in his words, to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. And so he moved to a simple cabin in the woods with only the bare necessities of life at his disposal. Blaise Pascal, the French physicist, writer, philosopher, and theologian, wrote these words in the 1600s. The only thing that consoles us from our miseries is diversion. And yet, it is the greatest of our miseries. For it is diversion, above all, which prevents us thinking about ourselves and leads us imperceptibly to destruction. Diversion prevents us thinking about ourselves and leads us imperceptibly to destruction. He further wrote that all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. Victor Frankl, an Austrian neurologist and Holocaust survivor, believed that at the heart of being human was purpose and the quest for meaning. Even after seeing friends and others suffer and die, Frankl believed everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. He said, life is never unbe made unbearable by circumstances, but only by a lack of meaning and purpose. I recently read a fascinating article by Dr. Bruce Grayson Dr. Grayson is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. He first became introduced to near-death experiences, or NDEs, as a psychiatric intern when he was called into the emergency room to evaluate a young woman who had overdosed. She was unconscious and could not be roused. The doctor walked 50 yards down the hall to talk to the patient's roommate. He asked the roommate about stressors in the patient's life, recent changes in her mood, and what drugs she might have taken. He then went back to the ER, admitted the patient who was still unconscious, 
to the intensive care unit and went back to see her the following morning. When he arrived at the ICU the next morning, she was very drowsy as he began to introduce himself. She interrupted and said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. The doctor looked puzzled because she had been unconscious when he saw her. She said, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate. She went on to describe details of the room, what they were wearing, and the content of their conversation. This was Dr. Grayson's first encounter with a person who had a near-death experience. Since then, over the past 50 years, he has interviewed thousands of people who were brought back from the threshold of death. In some cases, even after having been pronounced dead. And they had striking stories to tell. Hundreds of patients have spoken to him about out-of-body experiences and seeing things they shouldn't have been able to see while they were unconscious. But he said, as striking as these experiences are, for me as a psychiatrist, their most impressive feature is their effects on people's lives. Typically, people I have spoken with return from near-death experiences with permanent changes in attitudes, beliefs, values, and behavior. They become less interested in worldly things like material possessions, competition, and fame, and more interested in non-physical things, in caring, compassion, and altruism. He says, I have not seen that they become more religious, but I've noticed that they often become more aware of the spiritual aspects of life. I've seen career military and police officers after NDEs become healthcare workers, teachers, and social workers. Competitive businessmen have become compassionate employers, and criminals and addicts have turned their lives around. He says the most common effect I've seen with people who have had NDEs is a conviction that death is not the end, but rather a transition, and that what comes after death, no matter how it is described, is not something to fear. And so those who have experienced near-death experiences find that when they lose their fear of death, they also lose their fear of living to the fullest. As a result, their lives become more meaningful and fulfilling. Please don't get me wrong. 
I'm not recommending a near-death experience as a way of finding meaning and purpose in life. I wouldn't wish that for you, and I certainly would not want to go through such a terrifying ordeal myself. What I am saying is that if it's possible for people with these experiences to exhibit permanent changes to attitudes, beliefs, values, and behavior, if it's possible for them to become more caring and compassionate and altruistic, if losing their fear of death allows them to live life to the fullest and to have more meaningful and fulfilling lives, if all of this is true, then all of this ought to be possible for us as well. Does it require living more simply like Thoreau or ridding ourselves of a few of our many diversions as Pascal suggests? Perhaps. At the very least, I would argue that finding meaning and purpose involves choice. As Henry Nouwen says in today's meditation printed in your bulletin, we are, each of us, responsible for our own lives. When all is said and done, we are responsible for how we choose to live. Or as Frankel put it, we have the ultimate freedom, the freedom to choose our attitude in any given set of circumstances. But in this age of information anxiety and information overload, the very act of choosing becomes more difficult. The teacher of Ecclesiastes and even Jesus in his day lived in relatively small and limited communities. They were only aware of the things that took place around them, where they lived and worked. If someone was in need, sick or suffering, or grieving a loss, it was likely a family member or a friend or neighbor, at least a person with whom they were acquainted. Today, on the other hand, we are exposed to an overabundance of information from network news, cable news, the internet, and social media. We don't just know what's happening locally. We are almost instantly aware of what's happening nationally and even globally. A good friend just sent me a cartoon where one person says to the other, my desire to be well-informed is currently at odds with my desire to remain sane. This overabundance of information has vastly expanded our circle of interest. We learn about the pain and suffering in the world from economic hardships in Cuba to the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan to earthquakes and tropical storms in Haiti, and we keep up 
with the hospitalizations and deaths associated with the coronavirus, and we can't ignore the politics of mask mandates and vaccine controversies. We see people's homes burning due to wildfires in the West. We worry about global warming. We pay attention to the housing crisis and watch prices across the board continue to rise. And we know that there's still work to be done on race relations in this country. We are bombarded with information and we are overwhelmed. Interested in the articles we read and in the news images we see on TV? Yes. And we may even be interested to the point of really caring. But while our circle of interest may be huge and vast, our circle of influence, those things about which we can actually do something, is relatively small. Before this explosion of information at the click of a mouse, a person's circle of interest, the things he or she knew about and cared about, was about the same size as his or her circle of influence, the things that he or she could do something about. That's certainly no longer the case. And so I can now watch news coverage of what's happening in Afghanistan, and it can make me angry and sad and indignant. I can run through a whole range of emotions, and I can feel like I really care about what's going on. I might even go on social media and rail about it, to my followers, providing myself the illusion of doing something about it. But what can I really do? Sitting in my armchair at home, in my living room, in Charlotte, what can I do about what's happening in Afghanistan? And besides, Afghanistan is one hotspot, one global tragedy among many that are happening in the world today. So I think it is inevitable that a certain degree of numbness sets in. And eventually, because we are powerless to do anything, we gradually become indifferent St. Maximilian Kolbe wrote that the most dangerous poison of our times is indifference. I would propose that the solution to this creeping indifference is choice. We can't solve all the world's problems and some things that we truly care about, we have absolutely no control over. But we can choose where it might make a difference to invest our time and talents and resources. We can choose our circle of influence. 
out of a plethora of needs rather than being numbed by information overload and lulled into a state of indifference, we can choose to serve lunch to homeless people or we can choose to tutor a child or we can contribute medicine for Cuba or school supplies for needy students or we can call on a friend who's going through a difficult time. If we are going to find meaning and purpose in life, Jesus suggests that it is found in caring for the needy, the helpless, the oppressed, and the marginalized. We don't have to have a near-death experience. We have been given this wonderful and amazing gift of choice. We can choose, first, what our attitude will be when we're faced with life's difficulties. And then we can also choose how we will make our lives useful and meaningful. No, we cannot do everything, but we can do something. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity? The teacher suggests that life is short. It does not have to be meaningless. Perhaps a global pandemic is a good time to reconsider how we think about death, even about our own death, and to reevaluate what is meaningful and what is worth preserving in our lives. May it be so.